continuing a series in this book, considering what God might have to say to us uh, through this ancient story, the story of Him liberating His people and bringing them to the full flourishing of His promises. So Exodus, and we'll be in chapter 5. Exodus chapter 5, and I'm going to read um, all of chapter 5 into 6 and a little part of 6. So a little bit more of an extended passage this morning. Uh, So be patient uh, with me as we uh, consider uh, God's Word together. Exodus uh, chapter 5, hear now the word of the Lord. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday, as in the past? And the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, and yet they say to us, Make bricks! Behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, 
and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. And then jump with me to verse 9 of chapter 6. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people out of Israel, out of the lands of Egypt. Let's pray. Father, would you help us now as we come to what uh, is a distressing text in many ways, um, what is a difficult text, um, and, and we ask for, for your help, for understanding, for clarity, um, for humility, to receive your word, to be changed by it. Would you open our ears, would you open our eyes and our hearts? And we ask for the work of your spirit now as we listen. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Peter Nakis is a reporter for the Chicago Tribune. And he covers the night shift in some of the most difficult neighborhoods of that city. And as you can imagine, not very uplifting work. And and I read an article about him this week um, where he was asked, why do you keep doing this? Why, night after night, do you go into very dark and difficult places to tell these stories? Why not do something else? And his response is, I keep doing this because I choose honesty over comfort. I choose honesty over comfort. I think we could say something similar about Exodus chapters 5 and 6. This is a story that chooses honesty. The story of Exodus could be much shorter than it is. It could be simply God's people were in trouble and he stepped in and delivered them. He rescued them. We could jump straight to chapter 15 where they're singing and dancing and partying with tambourines. But this story chooses honesty. It chooses to to show us God's people who have lived in slavery. They have lived in oppression for hundreds of years. And God shows up. God begins to act. He sends Moses with his message. And what happens? It gets worse. Their situation gets worse. Their suffering increases as a result of God acting on their behalf. This is an honest story. And it is an honesty that we need. Most of us in this room will never suffer to the extremities that we read about in this chapter. But none of us in this room will escape pain. Physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual, relational suffering. None of us will escape it. We will all know sorrow and darkness and sadness and difficulty. We will know tragedies that on the global scale might seem small, but to us, they hurt more than we can bear. 
And so we need this truth-telling story. A story about pain, a story about increased suffering. And I want us to come to this text and ask a couple of questions. First of all, why? Why is there pain? And second of all, how? How should we respond to our pain? So the first question, why? Why is there pain? And of course, there is no easy and complete answer to why. But I want you to notice that Israel's pain, their suffering increases as a result of a contradiction. Their suffering increases as a result of the contradiction between thus says the Lord in chapter 5 verse 1 and thus says Pharaoh in chapter 5 verse 10. God says, free my people so they can worship me, so they can serve me. Moses, or Pharaoh says, who are you? I don't even know who you are. And this desire for worship is laziness. Over and over again, he says, your desire for worship, you're just idle. You're just lazy. You're just trying to escape the work that you're supposed to do. And some people wonder why, if God's intention is to free Israel permanently and take them to this new land, you notice how he sends Moses with this message that is just, hey, go, let us go out for three days and worship God. Let us go out to the desert and just have a festival before God. That's all we're going to do. Why does he do that? Why doesn't he say, no, let my people go permanently? Well, Pharaoh knows the answer to that question. Pharaoh knows what is at stake, even in a three-day journey to worship God. Because for the people of Israel to leave, even for one day, their burdens and worship God is to say, these people belong to a power and authority that's greater than Pharaoh. That's bigger than Pharaoh. So God says, these people, they are made for me. Pharaoh says, no, they're made for me. And Israel's suffering grows. Their pain increases. And our suffering is a result of this tension. It is a result of this contradiction. Because the contradiction goes further back than Exodus. It goes all the way back to the beginning, to the garden, when the snake says, Has God really said? Our pain is the result of sin. It is a result of the situation that is created by the claim that we exist for anything or anyone else other than God. Now hear me carefully. That does not mean that does not mean that personal suffering is the re- direct result of personal sin. Israel wasn't being punished. They're not being punished for their sin. They're not suffering because they sin. They are suffering because they live in a world that has been ruined by sin. They're suffering because they live with a human nature that has been wrecked and makes possible people like Pharaoh. And we suffer for the same reason. Sometimes our pain is a result of our sin. But often our pain, our suffering, is the result of living in a world that's been ruined by sin. Of living with human nature that has been wrecked by rebellion against God. Now, I think many of us want more of an explanation than that. We want more from God. 
Why, if he is good and powerful, does he allow and even plan for suffering to exist? Moment of candor from the seminary trained pastor? I don't know. I don't know. There is only so much that we can say about the question, why? And I ask it with you. And I wonder about it with you. But do let me say this. If God is great enough for us to ask Him that question, then He is great enough to have reasons beyond our understanding. If He is great enough for us to be mad at Him for the pain and suffering that's in the world, then He is great enough to have reasons, to have a plan, to have wisdom that is beyond ours. And if you choose to reject God because of the lack of explanation, know that the burden of the question is still there. Without God, how will you even define evil, much less explain it? So tracing our suffering back to sin doesn't give us a full explanation. It doesn't fully answer the question why, but it does give us an honest expectation. Do you hate it when a medical professional says to you, uh, this might hurt a little, and afterwards you're like, no, that hurt a lot? God doesn't do that with us. He says, this will hurt a lot. He said it to Moses in chapters 3 and 4. He said, Moses, you're going to go, you're going to announce this message, and Pharaoh is not going to like it. And Pharaoh will increase his pressure against God and against God's people. You can expect that. You can expect pain and suffering. God does not tell us, oh, this might hurt a little. He says to us, no, because you live in a broken and a ruined world, this will hurt a lot. Just because you're a Christian, just because you belong to the people of God, does not mean you get a free pass from the pain of a cursed world. Christians get Ebola. Christians get cancer. Christians get autoimmune diseases and all of the other tragic illnesses that are a part of our world. Christians suffer the darkness of abuse. Christians know the sorrow of messed up families and so on and so on. The Bible does not promise us less pain now. In fact, the New Testament in some places says maybe we should expect more. Because on top of suffering in a sinful world, we also will at times know subtle and overt opposition to our faith. This life will hurt. Sometimes a lot. So what do we do? Start serving Prozac with communion every week? (laughs) What do we do? Second question, how should we respond to our pain? And I think we can find two ways here in the text. First response, question. Question it. 
You notice how there are all these conversations in this text, and it bounces from place to place. You know, we start with Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh, and then Pharaoh to the foreman, and the foreman to the leaders of Israel, and then they back to Pharaoh, and then they back to Moses. And then where does Moses go? He goes to God. Finally, the conversation goes to God in chapter 5, verse 22. And how does he engage the the conversation with God? Why have you done evil to this people? Why have you sent me? And why haven't you done anything about it? And notice what God doesn't do. God doesn't suppress Moses' questions. He doesn't say to Moses, stop it. Stop your whining. Stop your crying. Stop your worrying. Stop your fear. Stop your anger. Moses' questions here, they're not philosophical, they're not intellectual, they're existential. He asks questions out of grief, out of anger, and out of lament. And God doesn't say to him, stop it. And these questions, they ring out. They ring out throughout the Bible as an essential part of how we relate to God. The book of Job, if you're doing community Bible reading with us. Job asks some audacious questions of God. These questions ring out through the Psalms, through the prophets. God, why? Where are you? How long until you do something about it? They ring out through the New Testament all the way to the final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, which gives us a picture of heaven, of God's throne in heaven. And chapter 6 of that book says to us that there are martyrs there. There are people who've been murdered for being Christians, and they're gathered around the throne of God. And what are they doing? Are they sitting on clouds, placidly strumming their harps? No, they are screaming, How long? How long, God, until you make it right? The Bible teaches us to question, to grieve, to lament. What's your response to pain? What's your first response to distress, to suffering, to difficulty? I think in our cultural context, there tend to be two responses. The first, fix it. We go into repair mode. How can I make this better fast? How can I fix this? Or at least, how can I explain it away? Other possibility, numb it. How can I take the edge off? How can I escape at least momentarily from my pain? You know where both of those end up? They end up in denial and anger because they don't work. We need to learn to lament. We need to learn to come to God with the deep sadness of our questions and ask Him, why? Where are you? How long until you do something about this? So first response, question, grieve, lament. Second response, wait. Wait. When God does respond to the questions of Moses, he responds in the future tense. Moses says why, and God says, I will, I will, I will, 
I will. And we didn't read all of this in chapter 6, but you see in verses 2 to 8, God brings Moses back to the promises. He brings him back to his own commitment uh, to rescue, to a good and new land, and the promise of presence. And he says to him, Moses, I will redeem you, I will rescue you, I will lead you, I will be with you. When we ask God why, often he responds with wait and watch this. Watch what I will do. Scripture teaches us, yes, to grieve, but also to view our pain through the lens of the future. Through the lens of what God has committed himself to doing. What he has said that he will accomplish. Scripture teaches us to be sad and then to cling to the promises that God has given to us. Remember, generations had lived and died in slavery, knowing the promises of God, but experiencing what seemed to be the opposite of those promises. And God still says, wait, trust me, and wait. Long for something better. Ask for something better. Expect something better. And then patience. And isn't that one of those frustrating religious cliches? Just trust God and wait. And we we recoil at that because it is so easy to say and so difficult to live. Isn't that where the people of Israel are? Chapter 6 shows us, chapter 6 verse 9 shows us that they have stopped listening. Remember at the end of chapter 4, they heard the message from Moses and they worshipped. Now in chapter 6, they hear the message of Moses and they say, we're done. No more listening. And it says they stopped listening because of a broken spirit. That's not the best translation. That phrase actually means a shortness of spirit. They ran out of gas. Their will atrophied. They couldn't stand it any longer, and so they stopped listening. So how is it possible? How is it possible? I mean, these people suffer way more than most of us will ever suffer. How is it possible to live grieving and waiting? Well, it's possible because God not only told us to do that, But he took on skin and bone. And he himself in the person of Jesus lived it. Jesus in his life and ultimately at the cross went further into suffering than any of us will ever have to go. Jesus joined our pain. And he dealt with more than we will ever have to deal with. And he joined our questions, right? Those ringing questions throughout Scripture. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus had to go into the grave waiting. Waiting for an answer. So he knows our pain. He sympathizes with our pain. But the father didn't leave the question of the son unanswered, did he? Jesus 
cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he died and he went into the grave. And then the father answered. And he raised him from the dead. And the resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of a future to which we belong if we believe in him. Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of hope accomplished. A world restored to goodness that we don't even know how to desire. Humanity, for those who belong to Jesus, humanity redeemed and renewed to that for which we were made. Jesus is the beginning of that future. And because of his resurrection, the Apostle Paul can say to us in Romans chapter 8, you can live grieving, groaning with the Spirit of God but patiently waiting, faithful to the call that, given, has, that God has given you now. Why? Because your present sufferings aren't even comparable to the future glory that will be revealed in you when you fully participate in Christ's resurrection. How are we able to grieve and wait? By looking in faith to Christ to what He has done, to what He by His Spirit is doing now, and what He will finish when He returns and makes all things new. You remember Peter Nikese, this reporter for the Chicago Tribune, who covers very, very difficult events. The article I read about him said that at the end of his night shift, he likes to drive to one of the neighborhoods in Chicago where he can park and watch the sun rise over Lake Michigan. And he says in that article, the reason I do that is because as I see the sun rise, it is as if it washes away all of the grime. It is a sign that maybe something better can happen. Jesus is our sunrise over Lake Michigan. As we live in the night of our pain, we must be honest about the darkness. But we can also learn hope. Because in Christ, the dawn has already begun. So let's look to Him who is our light. Let's pray.